inventors and their inventions. Welcome to Radio Cade, a podcast from the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention in Gainesville, Florida. The museum is named after James Robert Cade, who invented Gatorade in 1965. My name is Richard Miles. We'll introduce you to inventors and the things that motivate them. We'll learn about their personal stories, how their inventions work, and how their ideas get from the laboratory to the marketplace. Brain plasticity and epigenetics, what do those terms mean and why do they matter? I'm your host, Richard Miles, and I'm very pleased to welcome a very distinguished guest, Dr. Brian Kolb, neuroscientist at the University of Lethbridge in Canada, the author of numerous books and articles on neuropsychology, and the recipient of the Order of Canada, Canada's highest civilian honor. Welcome to Radio Cade, Brian. Thank you. Brian, I read somewhere that your groundbreaking textbook, Fundamentals of Neuropsychology, is the most stolen book in England. What is up with that? Well, apparently it's true. It's stolen from libraries. That obviously doesn't happen in Canada or the U.S. People buy the book. We had a heck of a time getting it published in in the late 1970s because nobody believed there was such a field, and it turns out there is. And the book did very well. For an author, obviously an author would like to get paid on the sales, but to have your book stolen, probably better than your book being dropped off at used bookstores. But let's talk about that. The book itself was very important because it was pathbreaking. It was published, I think, in 1980. And you talked about brain plasticity. Not just that, but that was one of the fundamental things. And basically, your definition, I believe, is the ability of the brain to reorganize its structure, function, and connections in response to experiences. So why don't you sort of walk our listeners through what does that mean? How can we think about brain plasticity in a useful way? If you imagine being born into the world, the uh, brain has no idea what world it's going to be. It could be in Alaska, it could be at the equator, it could be in Africa. And so the brain biologically needs to be able to change itself to adapt to the environment that it's in. That's sort of the background as to why evolution would have done this. It's not just true of us, it's true of worms. So all animals have this capacity to change their brain in response to the environment that they find themselves in. And of course, if your listeners would learn anything from this discussion today, we have to change their brains because somehow to store material, the brain has to change. It's just not magic. So if I understand then correctly, and we're not stuck with the brain we're born with, right? Basically, from the minute we're born, the brain is constantly reshaping itself. Give me a magnitude of the degree to what we're talking about. Is it just a little bit that the brain sort of prunes a few neurons here and there and adds? Or how dramatic is it, say, if we take a a newborn and we look at them when they're one year old or five years old or 12 years old, what kind of changes have occurred in the interim in terms of the brain changing itself? So the, the changes are not small. They're quite dramatic. So when we're born... We have twice as many neurons as we're going to need, twice as many as we have now, uh, which seems a little odd. And then over the next couple of years, we make connections at an enormous rate, and we end up with far more connections than we need. And so around age two, we start getting rid of them. And depending on which part of the brain we're looking at, it's going to begin around two other regions, the higher levels of, of cognition is later. Let's say we're starting to lose uh, in the frontal connections and neurons around age five. We will lose half of them. And at the beginning of adolescence or puberty, uh, the rate we lose on that is remarkable. It's about 100,000 connections per second. 
So 100,000, 100,000, 100,000, 100,000. So if you think about 13-year-old girls, they are not the easiest group to deal with because their brain is changing so fast. The kids, of course, are inventing themselves at that age. They're becoming who they're going to be. And what that means is they're creating the brain of the environment that they're headed into. So if you look at a one-year-old, the one-year-old still doesn't really know what the environment's going to be. It certainly is growing uh, connections. The neurons aren't being born or not many any longer. And then as the child begins to adapt to the environment that it's in, whatever that happens to be, then it starts to change. So if you think about language, if you imagine a, a child who's born in a house or a home that speaks Japanese or Korean, they're not going to hear the sounds L or R. But they can discriminate those sounds when they're six months old. But as time goes on, they start losing the ability to make those sound discriminations. And so as an adult, they have this difficulty in discriminating L and R. Similarly, if we're born in a house that speaks English, there are sounds in other languages that we simply cannot discriminate once we're adults because we lose that ability. So the, the brain is getting rid of things it's not going to use, getting rid of connections that are not necessary. Now, one question you can ask is, what happens if you don't get rid of these connections? What happens if you keep them all? And the answer is cognitive disabilities. So children who do not lose a lot of these connections cognitively are impaired. So we historically would have called them retarded. We don't any longer, but that's basically what it is. I remember watching one of your talks and you talked about language and it was somewhat similar to when you buy like a, a new Apple product that's sold all over the world and you see it installing the files. It installs with all sorts of Russian and Japanese and Portuguese, I guess, to make your keyboard compatible or something like that. Is that sort of what we're talking about, that a newborn has basically all of this software loaded to do lots of different things, but based on the environment, they're not going to need all that. And what I found was fascinating is that it's counterintuitive that that loaded up brain, I guess, is somewhat of a disadvantage and that you want to sort of prune or make it more efficient. Is that more or less accurate? That is a wonderful analogy. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm going to use that in the future. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's fully loaded and ready to go, but it, it's not efficient. And so if we can make things more efficient, then we're going to have a greater cognitive capacity. Well, good. I'm glad I got the analogy right. I've had guests where I, I rolled out an analogy and they, and they say, no, that's completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I clearly didn't understand the concept. So we've described plasticity, like the ability of the brain to change itself. And you've also done a lot on something called epigenetics. So before we go into the implications of all this, certainly from an educational perspective, why don't you also define what epigenetics is so that way we can talk it both in the same conversation? Sure. So if you look at any cell in the body, it has the same DNA. So cells that make your skin, your bones, your eyes, your brain, all have the same DNA, and yet the cells are different. And so the question is, why are they different? Well, they're different because different genes are turned on and different genes are turned off. So the idea of epigenetics is that gene expression, the turning on or turning off of genes, is regulated by experience, by things that are going on around us. And those things could be inside us or those things could be outside of us. But the idea is that if you're going to change the brain, if you're going to have plastic changes, the changes are going to result from changes in the activity of genes. This activity of genes is affected by experience. And so the idea of epigenetics is that we have a certain experience. It might be a stressful event. It might be a wonderful event. It might be a drug. Who knows what it is? But those things will change the expression of genes, which changes creation of proteins, manufacture of proteins, and so on in the body or in the brain particularly. 
So this is really a revolutionary insight because I think prior to this, you've had this debate for centuries about nature versus nurture, right? What you're born with, what you inherit as part of your genes, and then your environment and all of your experiences and whether that's the way you were raised or the way you're educated or whatever happens to you, that shapes you. But this seems to imply that it's not just a mix of those two they're actually together in the form that your experiences can make you, well, why don't you explain it, particularly with the role of the father, which is really, really fascinating that these changes occur even before somebody essentially is conceived. That's right. In fact, it's paradoxical. It seemed at first that the father could have a bigger influence on the gene expression of the offspring than the mom, but it's related to the fact that the changes in gene expression can be transmitted by the sperm. So the idea here is that if you take a father who's had some sort of stressful event, maybe was a soldier in Iraq or something, just a horrible experience, that's going to change the gene expression in the sperm of the dad, which as a result is going to change the way in which the developing brain of his offspring is going to progress. It is true that the mom has also evolved, but her eggs don't change. So the eggs that she is born with that will eventually be used to create babies, they don't change. They're not changed by experiences. But the sperm is because the sperm dies every 40 days or so and you create new sperm. And so that new sperm is being affected by the experiences that the dad has had. That means that the same dad could have a different kind of gene expression transmitted to different children, depending on the experiences that they've had in the previous two or three months or maybe longer. So that's the idea there. And these changes can cross generations or can be shown in the grandchildren, maybe the great-grandchildren, who knows. The effect gets much smaller over time. So if you have your daughter or your son, they have experiences too, and so it's going to affect gene expression. And so the, the influence of that event that the father had preconceptually to you is going to start decreasing, but nonetheless, there is a footprint of it there. If you go back to this idea that epigenetics is novel, if you remember, there was a scientist called Lamarck, and Lamarck believed there was that genes could learn, essentially, that learning could be transmitted from generation to generation, and people thought, decided this was crazy, it's not like that. Well, it turns out he was correct. He didn't know the mechanism, but in fact, it looks like that's what's actually happening. So you're right, nature and nurture are working together, back and forth, back and forth. So just so I understand this correctly, Brian, I can't change my own DNA. I'm stuck with my DNA. And not all genes can switch on or off, right? You're only talking about a certain subset of genes, or do all, all genes have the ability to essentially be turned on or turned off? I don't know the answer to that. My guess is that most have the ability to be turned on or turned off, but imagine some can't. Good question. You talked about the example of PTSD from someone in Iraq or a war zone. I assume it also goes the other direction. For instance, if I inherited the DNA of being a very good baseball player, for instance, and then I became a great baseball player, I hit the major leagues, the likelihood then that, say, my kids would inherit that ability are now much greater, right? Because I've on that gene for pitching or catching or whatever. I'll ask you, does that explain why you often see sports stars, you know, fathers and sons who are in the major leagues, whether it's baseball or hockey or football, at a rate that would be implausible unless there was some sort of genetic connection, right? Correct. We should make it clear that it's not a gene. We're talking about multiple genes. Nothing is, is usually a gene. The odd diseases, but for the most part, that's not the case. But yeah, that would be why you get somebody like Gordie Howe and his three sons all playing pro hockey at the same time. 
I always felt a little bit sorry for maybe the one kid that didn't get it, right? Like there's a, <laughs> yeah. you know, Peyton Manning and Eli Manning, and I think their father was a famous quarterback as well, right? But there's one son that doesn't have it. So I've always wondered what is Thanksgiving dinner like at those households? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so Brian, I think I've got it, and I hope our listeners have got it, that basically brain plasticity, brain can and does change itself a lot, but there are certain windows, right? So it, it's not like a continuous process that every year your brain either grows a certain number of neurons or loses them. There are windows in which that's sort of concentrated, and that your research and other people's have found has a tremendous influence on particular education and then everything that sort of flows from good or bad education. A lot of life outcomes are going to stem from whether you were well-educated or did well in school or, or not. So why don't you talk a little bit about what research has shown as the correlation between those windows of brain development and future outcomes? Well, the earliest window, obviously, is the prenatal window, but the first one to three years is a window of a lot of change. Then a period, it's not quiescent, but it's not changing as much until uh, the onset of puberty. And then we have this period in adolescence of huge change. Now, we used to think that the brain was pretty much finished developing by about age 18, but it's not. And so it continues on into the third decade. And so we're looking at changes going up to say age 30, 32, depending on whether you're a man or a woman. If you ask people who are, say, over 40 or 50, when they became who they are, most people would say somewhere around 30. Clearly, there are changes that when we look back at and we can see that are going on for a long time. Then we have a reduction in plasticity, but mercifully, it doesn't stop. So that even at my age, I'm 72, I can still learn things. I don't learn them as quickly as my grandchildren, unfortunately, but I can still learn things. The brain is still plastic. However, there are disorders in which the plasticity really does decline, like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and other demanding diseases, where we now see that the brain really isn't changing very easily. But for most people, the changes can continue on into senescence, but at a very much, much slower rate, for sure. So we have these two windows, one shortly after birth and the other one in early adolescence in particular. The second one's really important because we're worrying about kids experimenting with drugs when they're 13, 14, when the brain is really changing. One of the things that Terry Robinson and I discovered about 20 years ago was that every psychoactive drug that you take actually produces permanent changes in the structure of neurons. And those changes that occur when kids are experimenting with drugs have different consequences than they do with you or me, particularly cannabis is a worry investigating the effects of cannabis at age 13, 14, 15, the effects can actually be dramatic in the 20s with respect to mental health and so on. So that's a big worry about plasticity. There's something that's pathological. I just want to throw one other thing in here, and that is if you have an idea and you can remember the idea, it means that you changed your own brain, that that idea has changed the brain, which is, when you think about it, quite remarkable. But that's the only way you can remember it. So one of the things we talk about at the Kid Museum, particularly with regards to education, is the value of interactive experience that a lot of inventors, a lot of entrepreneurs often don't do well or haven't done well in a classic school system. They have sort of different experiences. And what I found fascinating about one of the things that I saw you talk about was the language development skills in the first 18 months of life, and that it's not enough to be simply exposed to, say, a large vocabulary passively, 
you really have to get in the rhythm of being able to have a conversation in a given type of way. And that has profound differences or profound outcomes on how somebody does later in life. So can you explain how exactly that works and, and what the research shows about those differences? Yeah. One of the metaphors we use here is serve and return. So the idea is that if you are passively listening to, to language, whether it's on TV or the radio or whatever, or it's just in the background, you're not actually actively engaged socially with the sender of that information, but you need to be. So if I say something to you and, then, and you're a child and then you respond, that's the serve and return idea. There's a really nice experiment trying to teach kids. I believe it was Japanese, but it was not English, English-speaking kids. And they either saw this woman trying to teach them on TV, or she was in the TV, the old kind of TVs where there was a big cathode ray tube. And so she's actually there, same woman. But she can actually serve and return with the kids in the one case, and in the other case, she can't. And guess which kids learned Japanese, the ones who actually had the personal interaction. So the social support, the social interaction is really critical to the plastic changes in the brain. So I guess one question really, as we're recording this in the, you know, the middle of 2020, in the midst of the mm-hmm. 19 sort of lockdown, what that means for education and schooling, is there anything to suggest that a serve and return, as you call it, style online is just as effective or less effective than face-to-face? Because obviously there's a whole bunch of other types of communication that go on between people face-to-face, visual cues and facial cues. Does a lot of that get lost during an online experience or the fact that you can actually talk to and be talked from somebody online, is that good enough? It's a really good question and I'm sure there are people studying that. As a professor who this fall is going to have to be online, with 80 students, they're not going to be on my screen. I won't be able to see them. It's impossible on Zoom to do that. And so are they going to get the same education? I doubt that. But if it's two people, as you and I are now on screen, I suspect that we're going to get a lot of the serve and return effects. Whether children can be engaged in the same way is an empirical question that I'm sure that many developmental psychologists are studying right now. It's a really, really good question. One of the things I really want to ask you about is it seems like the most important window, if I understand your research correctly, is that sort of first 18 months where certainly the absence of direct communication with an infant is, is really disastrous. And I think it's from those Romanian orphan studies and other studies have just shown it's just a terrible. But there are these other windows later on where you've got a window of, of learning, I guess. Let me give you three scenarios and give me your reaction to the three scenarios in terms of what does the research say, if anything, about practical decisions as people trying to sort out. Scenario number one would be you have a 12-year-old and you're trying to decide, do I have them study music or do sports? Number two, you're 18 years old and do you study chemistry or do you study history? And then number three, late in life, you're, let's say, 56. And should you learn French on Duolingo or just drink Bordeaux all day? (laughs) Very specific nature of the third scenario, it's asking for a friend. What can you tell us about brain plasticity at those other stages, adolescence, early adulthood, and then middle age? Well, one of the most important things that children can do using your, I think it was age 12, piano lessons versus sports is music has a profound influence on how we age. So basically it's like learning a foreign language. So we know that people who have musical training prior to say age 20 age better, the incidence of dementia is much lower and so on later in life. Music engages the entire brain. 
it's a difficult decision will be in that in sports because you need the exercise. Exercise increases the blood flow into the brain. So you want to do both in a sense, but it may not be possible. Chemistry versus history. The person in the 20s, the brain is more likely to change in positive ways if you're doing things that are interesting. If you're not engaged, if I'm taking chemistry and I hate it, which wasn't true, but let's imagine it was, I'm not going to learn it and I'm not going to remember it. So it may be that I was fascinated with European history and I got really engaged in that. So I think it's the amount of engagement that's going to make a difference to how plastic the brain will be. In terms of the 56-year-old, I've been playing the guitar for over 50 years, but I bought a banjo in 1983 and never learned to play it. And so I decided this year to learn to play it. And my wife got a new piano. And so she's taking up the piano again. She took piano lessons as a child for eight or 10 years. And then once she went to vet school and all these things, that she never played again. We've carted this bloody piano around from place to place. And I keep saying, you know, he plays it. So now she has luckily a, a new piano with a little baby grand. She's taking piano lessons again. She's close to my age. So we're both learning to play these instruments and now we're playing duets together. It's really a, not the banjo and the piano, the guitar. It's really a lot of fun, but the brain clearly can change in the older person. I have to say the Bordeaux helps make it fun. <laughs> well, I have another banjo story, not quite as successful. My wife gave me a banjo about 15 years ago, hoping that I would learn how to play it. I did try to learn, but turns out we had a friend who really was quite good and we decided just to give the banjo to him because... <laughs> <laughs> The sum benefit of your humanity would be much better if he on the banjo and, and not me. But he actually answered the question I was about to ask, how much research has been done, particularly on people in their later years, let's say 50 or 16 above, those who choose to do something new or resurrect something that they used to know how to do well versus those who don't? Are there different outcomes in terms of health or cognitive ability? Or what do we know about that stage? Yes, there seems to be. And music is one of the ones that looks like it's really beneficial later in life. You can buy all these games and so on that are supposed to improve your cognition later in life. There's absolutely zero evidence that that really generalizes to anything. Music is one thing that does. Probably the only other thing that has as big an effect would be learning a new language, which is like learning music and exercise and the exercise again because of the increased blood flow in the brain and elsewhere in the body. But those three would probably be the most beneficial ones. One of the insights is that if you do choose to do something later in life, it sounds like it should be something new, right? Rather than doubling down on a skill that you already have and you decide, well, I'm already a good musician, I'm going to be a better musician, or I'm already good, whatever, I, I ski well, or I'm going to do better at it. Does that not challenge the brain as much as if you take up something even at an elementary level that you really don't know how to do? Let's say learn Chinese or learn to play an instrument that you've never picked up before. Is that better exercise or better stimulation for the brain at that age? I would think so, as long as you're engaged with it and not frustrated by it. He will be to some extent, obviously, but one of my colleagues was saying, well, he's been playing the guitar for so long, but he plays the same music over and over again. I said, you really need to, to play new music, whether it's a different style of music or different material. Playing the same songs over and over again really isn't engaging the brain very much. It's just a motor skill. It's, it's a program that comes out and it's not really changing anything. Brian, I always like to ask guests about their background, sort of what influenced them. And since we are talking about brain plasticity and education and new experiences, can you tell us a little bit about your growing up? Your father worked in the oil industry, right? And your mother was a dancer for a while, professional dancer. What was it like growing up? What do you remember of your early influences? And when did you feel your brain changing? Let's go with that. <laughs> 
Well, I'm not sure I felt it changing, but uh, I grew up in Calgary, and yeah, my dad was in oil business. He liked to say that he went to the University of Turner Valley, and people would say, oh yeah, I've heard of that. Well, Turner Valley was the first big oil field in Canada, and he was a roughneck prior to the war. And so he never actually went to university because there was no money. He did extremely well in, in school. He still had his high school marks and he liked to compare them to mine and I didn't shine compared to his. My mom was a dancer and she would spend a lot of time sort of dancing around the house, I remember, but she was a housewife. The thing that I kept hearing was, you're going to be the first person in our family to go to university, which I was. And when I went, I didn't know what university really was. I mean, it's just, just more school. And I thought, well, maybe I'll, I'll be a lawyer, not realizing what lawyers do. But it sounded okay. As I was finishing my first degree, one of my professors asked me what I was going to do. And I said, I have no idea. And he said, well, why don't you go to graduate school? And I didn't even know what that was. So he explained it. And he says, come with me. He was the associate dean of graduate studies. He said, fill this form out. And so I did. And I was accepted at the University of Calgary to do master's work. And I did it in what at that time basically was animal behavior. And I was studying, it's going to sound pretty dumb in 2020, but the learning ability of squirrels and chipmunks and rats and so on, comparing them. My mother was convinced this wasn't, and my father in particular, this wasn't going to be a career. So I had become interested in the fact that these animals were so different behaviorally, had to be related to their brain, so decided to start doing neuroscience, what we now call neuroscience. It didn't really exist then. I headed off to Penn State and worked with somebody who was one of the leaders in the field, particularly with respect to the frontal lobe. Did my PhD with him. Then I went to University of Western Ontario to do neurophysiology for two years. And then I went to the Montreal Neurological Institute to study humans with brain injuries, surgically induced brain injuries, which was going back to my PhD kind of stuff. And that's when I discovered neuropsychology and went, you know, there must be a book on this. And I would talk to the graduate students and other postdocs and everybody agreed there was no book and there was no such course. And so I decided to design a course. And when I moved back to Alberta, people at McGill thought I was nuts to leave McGill and go to this little, very new university, University of Lethbridge, but it was not far from where I'd grown up. And I just thought, I want to go home to the mountains. And I decided, you know, we really need to write a book. Now, I was 28 and you know, 28-year-olds don't start fields. They don't start writing books in a field. But I didn't know that. And so I convinced my new colleague, Ian Wishaw, to do it with me. So we wrote this book. And the rest was history. We were just finishing the eighth edition, which I think will be the last one, 40 years later. So that's sort of the nutshell of the educational history. So you were 28 when you wrote the book, meaning your brain wasn't quite done being developed. So that's probably why you wrote the book, right, uh, Brian, is because you didn't know any better. But as you said, one final question. You've been a pioneer in this field of neuropsychology. What is sort of the next chapter? What does the field look like now? What are your grad students or your young postdoc fellows? What are they working on? Can you give us a sort of sneak peek of what sort of research we might see coming or being published in the next decade or two? Sure. So the biggest change in uh, behavioral neuroscience has been the advances in non-invasive imaging, so MRI, functional MRI, and all the various variations of this. So historically, in order to understand the human brain work, we studied lab animals, and we induced, and we still do induce injuries in these animals, and, and then see what happens. We measured electrophysiology and so on, but we couldn't really do it in any non-invasive way. 
I remember when I was at the MNI in 1975, the first CT scan in Canada was installed and, and the radiologists were going crazy over this because they could actually see in, through the skull. In, in uh, hindsight, it was pretty crappy because it was new, but now it's fabulous. I mean, you, the MRI can really make a difference to how we study the brain and functional magnetic resonance imaging means that we can see the brain in action online. We can see the blood flow moving one place to another as we're doing things. And so this has really made a difference. So that's one big difference. Going to where I think students are going, one of the things we're doing is we're trying to do grand rounds presentation to the pediatric neurologists at the University of Calgary Children's Hospital. Uh, it was mostly our animal work. And they wanted me to come and see the neonatal intensive care unit. And I said, well, what's the standard of care? What do you do with these kids? And basically they said, well, we cool them down for 24 or 48 hours to reduce the inflammation. And then we hand them to the parents and say, good luck. And I said, we can do a lot better than that. We can make a program up that's based on our animal studies to try and work with these kids. So tactile stimulation is huge. So skin-to-skin tactile stimulation in our animal studies, we've shown that tactile stimulation produces profound changes in brain. We can really re- reverse or reduce the effects of early brain injury, the effects of drugs, all kinds of stuff with tactile stimulation. So we have a program that's kind of got messed up a bit with COVID, but we'll resume doing that. We have another program that students are really interested in, applications to Indigenous communities where the early experiences are often not very good. The information about brain plasticity is absent for the moms and and the dads. They don't realize that this serve and return is so crucial to language development and cognitive development. So I think there'll be more and more of this kind of activity. And I think the use of animals is going to go down in, in large ways. We can use far fewer animals by using imaging techniques in the animals as well. So these are the changes that we're going to see. And of course, this explosion in humans of the non-invasive imaging. But one of the things we have to remember is that when you're looking at the non-invasive imaging, the whole brain seems to be involved in everything. But when you damage the brain, it doesn't look that way. So we still have to keep studying patients to try and get some sense of what the crucial regions are for particular kinds of cognitive activities. Brian, that is tremendous research that you've done and what you've sketched out of what's coming. And the implications, I think, are really just enormous across not just the fields of education, but a whole bunch of different fields and will impact a lot of the research that's going on and the applications. I want to thank you very much for joining me on the show today and stay safe up there in Calgary and hope we can have you back on the show at some point. Yeah, thank you. It's been fun. Radio Cade is produced by the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention, located in Gainesville, Florida. Richard Miles is the podcast host, and Ellie Tom coordinates inventor interviews. Podcasts are recorded at Hardwood Soundstage and edited and mixed by Bob McPeak. The Radio Cade theme song was produced and performed by Tracy Collins and features violinist Jacob Lawson.